I'm Randy Brutkowitz, and today we're talking with doctors Jennifer Polk and L. Marin Wood. Jen is joining us from Toronto, and Marin is in Denver. Dr. Polk received her PhD degree in history from the University of Toronto. Dr. Wood received her PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Both Jen and Marin possess firsthand knowledge of the challenges PhDs encounter when they leave academia for careers beyond the professoriate. In fact, they have dedicated their careers to helping graduate students and PhDs find success outside of academia. Doctors Polk and Wood are co-founders of Beyond the Professoriate. This is a mission-driven organization that provides career education and professional development for graduate students and PhDs in the humanities, social sciences, and STEM disciplines who are interested in non-faculty career outcomes. Considering that the focus of this podcast is on non-academic careers, in an interesting August 8, 2018 article Inside Higher Ed, written by Drs. Polk and Wood on this topic, I thought they would be great guests to have on Pathways. Let's find out what their advice is for you to prepare for a non-academic position, even while still in grad school and beyond. Jen and Marin, welcome to Pathways. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure. I want to find out a little bit more about you, and I think our audience certainly would like to know more. So in graduate school, what were your original career goals? All right, I'll go first. So this is uh, Marin talking. Um, well, I, uh, there's just a fun fact. Jen and I actually met doing our master's degrees in history at Carleton University in Ottawa. So that's actually how we knew each other uh, way back when. But uh, I always wanted to be a professor. Um, it was the only job I ever thought I was going to, to do. I wanted to be a high school teacher, I guess, when I was in high school. And then I got to college and realized that there was uh, this whole other world of um, intellectual pursuits. And so I, I wanted to teach and I wanted to be a, a professor. Uh, and so, you know, I was really excited to go to Carolina. It's a top 10 program in history. And when I started at Carolina, uh, a vast majority of people in my, in my department got tenure track jobs. And I actually helped to do some of the tracking on that. And it was about 75% of the cohort when I started uh, ended up with tenure track jobs. But um, I graduated in 2009, right into the heart of the recession. And um, there, were just, were there, there just weren't any jobs. And I had done no career exploration. I had done, I hadn't attended any workshops, hadn't thought about anything other than uh, a faculty position. And um, I was really ill-equipped to navigate uh, leaving academia and beginning to find a non-faculty career. I had just, I had never thought of it and I was, I had no skills and I had no, no way of really even beginning to ground myself or begin that process. And so saving other people from that fate <laughs> Of, um, of, that, of the questioning, of the self-doubt, um, and just feeling lost is what, what has really driven me to, to join with Jen in providing the career services that we do. And this is Jen. Uh, so in some ways, I have a similar story. In other ways, it's different. I was not thinking about careers at all. <laughs> I, you know, maybe I think that's a little uncommon, but I was 24 and I was young. <laughs> And I was really excited to go to University of Toronto, and I loved my master's. I loved, loved, loved doing my master's. And I was really excited uh, to continue. And I was just focused on the dissertation. Um, and then 
as is really common in humanities and as we've learned in all disciplines and most disciplines, uh, you get sucked in, if I can use that metaphor, uh, sort of in the air you breathe, uh, uh, that, that it's tenure track or bust. And so without sort of really doing it actively, I, I assumed that I was going to be working as a professor. And uh, ooh, <laughs> never felt particularly excited about that. And in the end, I, I poked around the job market, but never formally applied to anything. I, mean, I never applied to any postdocs um, and felt really crappy about not doing it, felt guilty about not doing it, but did not. Um, and uh, so there was a, a, a process not similar to what Mary went through of, in my words, flailing <laughs> and not knowing what was going on. And, and like Mary, I didn't have... I mean, I was not actively preparing for other things. Uh, and and that, that article you mentioned, Brandy, at the beginning, I mean, that comes uh, in part out of her own experience of not doing the things that we hope that people will now do <laughs> earlier than we did them, which was, in our case, after we graduated, which is fine, but not ideal. Yeah, do as I say, not as I did, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So I guess for from my perspective, it's you both kind of fell into it, but had you con you talked to each other after you both graduated and said, hey, look, we have to do something, uh, and you worked together uh, on this. Yeah, uh, it came a little later than that. So um, Marin and I both, you can correct my story, Marin, but we both ended up going uh, the route of self-employment. That was not necessarily like the original plan, but we found ourselves working for ourselves and with clients, Marin doing uh, research and me having one-on-one -on -one clients. I did life coaching courses. Uh, and Marin put together a boot camp for non-academic job seekers. So in some ways we were competitors, although the work we did have very different styles. Um, we, but we recognized, I think Marin was a little better at this than I like, hey, we should talk person I haven't spoken with in like eight or nine years, but whose name I recognize from the internet. <laughs> Marin was writing in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and I was writing in University Affairs, which is a Canadian um, uh, higher ed magazine. Uh, and so we, we uh, corresponded back in 2013. So I graduated in 2012, Marin, as you said, in 2009. Uh, and then, yeah, we got together in the fall of 2013 and uh, started working together then. And we did our first thing together, which is our annual online conference. And that's what Beyond Professor had started, an annual online conference. And our first one was in May 2014. And we did that for a few years. And now we work together every day all the time. <laughs> Doing more than that. But that's where we started. Yeah, the idea behind the career conference was um, I wanted to do something that was accessible to people regardless of where they were located. I wanted to make sure it was affordable. You know, traveling to conferences adds up. And the other thing that Jen and I really learned over the last five years of doing this is that using webinars allows us to bring in PhD experts that now work beyond the professoriate because they have jobs. And so if, I, if we can have an event in the evening or the, the conference is on a Saturday, then we can bring in some really interesting people who we might not other, otherwise be able to reach, people who are very busy, people uh, who would not necessarily travel, but who are very, very willing to spend an hour uh, sharing advice or talking about their own career transition stories. And um, 
we've been really blown away. I think that uh, I speak for both of us at the generosity of PhDs who've gone beyond the professoriate. Um, we actually beat people away with a stick to, uh, uh, because we have so many people who want to share their stories or connect or help or do seminars. Um, and that's been really amazing and, and allows us to be successful. We see ourselves as a service provider, you know, creating a collaborative space where PhDs can tell their stories and ask questions. Before we get to the article, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about your experiences as co-founders uh, beyond the story in terms of you know, what a typical day looks like, what's most rewarding to you, and what are the greatest challenges that you have to deal with? The greatest challenge that we have to deal with, I'm going to start there, is business is hard. Um, it is so hard. Uh, I think um, we wear, you know, you talk about a typical day, we wear so many hats. Um, and we tend to bite off, I think, I don't know, maybe it's just me, Jen, but we tend to bite off a lot. We're, we're very busy um, because there's, and we have a lot of activities. So, um, no, that doesn't really answer your question, but I think that one of the biggest challenges actually, you know, I see business as hard is um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the amount of time and energy and effort that goes into creating, we have an online community, we run online events, we do a conference, we're building an e-learning platform for institutional subscriptions. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about I don't know what do you want how do I want to say this about how much time and energy and effort and and labor hours go into the type of work that we do um, and so that that I think tends to be a challenge to sort of convince people that this is a service um, and that Jen and I spend 30 40 50 hours a week <laughs> sometimes um, on this collectively so um, we each. tend each yes uh, this is a more than a full-time job for both of us. Um, so I tend right now to be, I'm, I'm doing a lot of product development uh, in the work that I'm doing. So the last six months, I've been spending most of my time building our e-learning platform. I'm a historian. I know nothing about coding or WordPress, but I now know a little bit about coding and WordPress. Um, I manage with Jen, we, we manage... Um, our online community and we have a community manager who we work with to bring people into that. But a lot of the work that I've been doing is product development um, and trying to create strategic plans for rolling out the new products, developing them, marketing them, and communicating to right now institutions about our new, our new product. The simple and perhaps not all that useful answer to what I do day in and day out is I, I'm in my home office apartment <laughs> my apartment and I'm at my computer and I send a lot of emails and I look at spreadsheets um, I do a lot of googling you know that's kind of the surface level of what I do but deeper level is is event planning uh, project management uh, marketing like online marketing networking uh, outreach of various kinds um, and then Marin and I talk a lot about business strategy uh, business development uh, <laughs> putting up fires, uh, managing employees, do, and having employees, deciding to have employees. Um, uh, it's uh, we learn all the time. <laughs> Don't let anyone ever tell you that learning stops when you leave the university or academia. It is a damn lie. Uh, yeah, we learn all the time, and and I think what's kind of interesting about the both of us is that 
although we come out of an academic space and there may be a stereotype that academics are thinkers and not doers, we definitely have a doing impulse. Uh, you know, I mean, we sort of bring both, I'd like to think. Uh, but uh, we, we're a little more willing, I think, than maybe the stereotype suggests to let's try it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I and mean, I think, I think that speaks to we maybe have a little more on our plate than we can handle, but always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. sounds like you have many hats. You're doing lots of things, but in, you've been at it for five years, and it sounds like it's been very rewarding to you, sort of. Yeah, I think for both of us, you know, this new initiative will be really interesting. This new uh, e-learning platform, we're really excited about that. Um, I think the most rewarding thing for us is just, I, I think it's twofold. One is we really love hearing the stories of PhDs that go off and do really interesting and exciting things. It's really rewarding to hear just how successful people are when they leave the academy and the kind of, they're just the amazing, cool things and, and successes that people have. And we always feel really, really energized after those conversations. Jen and I right now are interviewing PhDs one-on-one. -on -one, and almost inevitably after one of us does the interview, we call the other person. We're like, that was amazing. You should hear this person's story. It was so great. And then the other thing that we really find empowering is, is just helping people. You know, having people come to the community, individuals come to the community or come to the conference. And then getting feedback later that, uh, that it, it changed their life, Lit, like literally changed their life, that they were feeling despair, they were feeling ungrounded, they were feeling hopeless, and they heard something in, in an interview or they watched a seminar that we hosted and they were able to put into to practice uh, something new, that they learned something that was able to launch their job search and that they now are on their way or have landed a new opportunity. Um, and that's what motivates us. We really do want to help people. And I, this maybe is a little less, I don't know, <laughs> makes me seem like a, a worse person, but I kind of like the influence and small amount of power that I, that I'd like to think that I'm growing <laughs> here. I mean, I, you know, we have, we think that we're right I, I, about this thing. And it's not just us, right? Like we like to harness the wisdom and the knowledge uh, of, of this whole community of our hundreds of PhDs uh, that we feature um, in our in our programs uh, and on our websites and because uh, their knowledge is not being harnessed in a systematic way and uh, let I it needs to be uh, so I mean obviously this podcast you're doing that work too right so yay <laughs> right? but I think that's that's it's important I mean I really believe in that and I I, uh, I, I want to be part of making change just to jump on that, I was going to say, you know, the energizing piece, I think the most frustrating piece is really closely tied to that and very closely tied to what Jen says, which is just the lost talent. You know, the, just how many people are being uh, leaving academia by choice or by force uh, because there are a lot, you know, there are just a limited amount of opportunities in academia for for all the talent. You know, it's just not possible for all the people who want to stay to stay and succeed. And so you know, the, the, the failure of departments to incorporate this knowledge and these people into, um, you know, alumni networks, internship programs, having them back into departments to teach courses, um, to develop 
new and interesting and innovative curriculum. Like it's, to me, it's just like, it's such a waste of these, of, of talent that could really build and edify and grow departments and institutions. And we get to do that, you know, with our community, but it's, it's, it's frustrating or discouraging to see. Yeah. I don't know. Just like, you know, just hearing from people um, that they feel like they're, that they're cut off from academia or they're cut off from their departments or they've been pushed out without um, maintaining those ties and, and that they they could maintain those ties. They could be a really useful member of the academic community, even if it's in a different way. Yeah, I, I agree. As a, I, I was a former faculty development dean and mantra was always help our faculty reach their greatest potential. I think that's one of the most important things to do. Let's get to your article. So I'm going to read your six important tips that you offered to folks using that knowledge and that, that informational data that you talked about, Jen. So these are developing a plan, understanding that transferable skills aren't enough, recognizing the value of your knowledge, making your research public, professionalizing and varying your teaching experience, and don't just do academic work. This is really focused, the article is focused on what you can do to prepare while still in graduate school in terms of a, a non-academic career path. Now for me, I was, I was really like number six. I like the last one. And really you're saying be a really well-rounded person. Frankly, I've always advised my trainees, my, my graduate students and postdocs in the lab and undergrads too, that you have a work-life balance or work-life integration, uh, whatever the current term is, but then it shouldn't be all work and no life. That's really quite important. And do some interesting things. You know, I, I see myself as more as a lab, more than a lab rat, personally. In fact, I, I started making beer again. I did that as a graduate student. And I've been taking Italian lessons for the last few years. And you had mentioned one of your, your Beyond the Professoriate community members, Libby, who also worked as a fitness instructor. And she was interested in a, in a consulting position, but she saw herself not just as a data scientist. Now, how can people be encouraged to do more than just academic work? Well, I was going to say I had to really push Libby to put that on her LinkedIn profile and to um, actually put that on her resume. And it's funny because it wasn't just that she was the fitness instructor with the right personality. It also turned out that one of the people that were hiring, his partner was in Libby's fitness class. And when he went to his partner and said, oh, this woman is a fitness instructor. Do you know her? And she said, I love Libby's classes. She's awesome. You should totally hire her. So it also tied into a really fun networking piece. Um, you know, she had the right personality, but she also had the networking piece. So I think the first thing is to just recognize, like in a way that Libby didn't, um, what kind of skills employers value and, and then the, think about places that you can develop those. So, you know, in that case, it was communication, it was uh, motivation, it was leadership. You know, I just did an interview with uh, someone the other day who talked a lot about the fact that non-academic employers really value leadership. And that's a really soft sort of nebulous category, but there's lots of places that you can develop leadership, you know, whether it's 
at the YMCA or whether it's, you know, volunteering with a nonprofit or whether it, or whether it's being a fitness instructor, there's lots of really creative ways that you can develop some of these soft skills. And so I think that's the first step I would say is talk to people and find out what employers value and then think creatively about ways that you can develop those skills so that you have a fun and interesting story that you can tell or uh, other types of work experience that you can or volunteer experience that you can leverage in order to showcase leadership, communication, mentoring, project management, um, you know, those types of things. Playing well with others, sharing your toys. And Randy, what you alluded to, I think is really important is both giving students and postdocs permission. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but sort of more in a like life coaching way, like give, giving folks permission to do other stuff. And at the same time, uh, acknowledging the value of the other stuff. And in, in Libby's case, it sounds like she hadn't necessarily acknowledged the value of it for herself, right? So, uh, and in my case, um, I was very active in the Toronto indie music scene, which had absolutely nothing to do with my history PhD. And it was something I did not talk about with my advisors. But, I, you know, over time, uh, I, I really did value it. And it took me a while to realize Although it did not lead directly to a career, I don't work in indie music now. Uh, I did a lot of stuff that was really valuable and helped me develop skills. Uh, and Meredith and I just hired a web developer the other day. It was somebody I know because he was a musician. <laughs> so you never know, right? But, it's, uh, a, it's that networking, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I, I, we haven't gotten to that part yet, but there's, that's the number one piece of advice that I think uh, PhDs and graduate students don't understand about non-academic work is the importance and value of that network. And that's the other really important piece about like, you know, your distractions or work-life balance is that when you start looking for opportunities, it's going to be your entire community that's going to actually help you. you know, they've done all studies that show and this, of course, makes sense that employers would rather hire somebody who comes with a personal recommendation than an unknown. Uh, and so, you know, we hear this a lot of time from people who are in positions of hiring, but if they can get a referral from their partner who happens to be in your fitness class that you're a fun and interesting person, well, that, that doesn't get you the job, but it certainly can get you an interview. And that's one of the things that, that uh, I think is really highly under, people don't understand and it's not valued in academia the same way it's valued outside of academia. You know, we talk about it as nepotism. Oh, that person got their academic job because of nepotism. And it's like, well, that's kind of how people hire outside of academia. They hire people that they know. And it's a consistent and constant story in all of the interviews that we do with PhDs that people by and large get their job through a per personal connection. And it's not nepotism so much as it is risk management on the part of the employer, right? And making good, good decisions based on cultural fit. Uh, you know, hiring is a lot of work, <laughs> so we probably all know. And uh, it's, it's a complex thing, and you want to make sure that you're going to hire the right person once. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, it makes absolute sense that you're going to hire somebody that uh, comes recommended by someone you trust. Yep, absolutely. So your first point, or your first tip, is develop a plan. How do you know what you don't know? Uh, that's part of the plan. 
So I think the first, you know, when we talk about the plan, it's not to set yourself up to be, you know, a director of communications at a nonprofit. The plan that we're thinking of is more, um, the academic job market is really tight. Like even if it's your plan A and the thing that you want to do, recognize that it's what a minority of PhDs are going to end up doing. And so the first thing I think is um, developing a plan in terms of how will you spend your time in graduate school. Uh, the other part of the plan is those informational interviews. Begin to talk to people and really explore your career options so that you're not feeling stuck, so that you don't have to build a network from scratch, so that when you actually get to graduation and you need a job, and let's say the academic job doesn't work out or the postdoc, then you're not beginning to develop a network uh, from, you know, again, from scratch. You're not beginning this process um, at the very beginning when it's in a hurry and all of a sudden you need money and an income. So that's what I think we mean by plan. Um, think long-term about, you know, a lot of times I hear from people like, well, I might, you know, I think I'm thinking about consulting or I'm thinking about being an editor or I'm thinking about, you know, this third role. And my, my point I always make is like those often have very similar uh, skill sets, similar competencies. There's a reason why you think you'd be a good consultant and a good kindergarten teacher. What are those commonalities? And think about the types of ways in which you can develop those skills or learn about the skills that employers in lots of different industries value and think about ways that you can cultivate those without necessarily being so focused on, I'm going to be, you know, a teacher, doctor, lawyer, dentist. In today's economy, people pivot they really, careers are really much more focused around, again, competencies and skills. So you develop a toolbox that you take with you through a variety of different organizations and a variety of different careers, and you'll move within organizations and sometimes entire industries. So it's not necessary for you to have a very clear vision uh, about where you're going to end up in order to have a plan. And part of having a plan is uh, <laughs> suggesting that Planning is a good thing, and knowledge is a good thing, and uh, being active, right? Being actively um, aware of and managing your career, and that that is something that happens now, uh, no matter, even if you haven't started graduate school yet, uh, you are managing your career now. I mean, we don't have the luxury anymore in today's economy, unfortunately, most of us, uh, to put it off till later. It, and I think something that a lot of people don't recognize, and it's not their fault because, like, you know, there's not a lot of talk about this, uh, is that the, applying for jobs is something that happens much, much later in the process than you imagine. <laughs> there is a lot of stuff to do way before you ever apply for a job. I mean, if you need one in two weeks, okay, right? But, you know, if you don't need a job for a few years, it doesn't mean that you can ignore this. I mean, you ignore it at your peril. Uh, this is what I can do as I don't, right, Marin? Uh, yeah. But there is a ton of stuff that you can do that's fun, right? It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be heart-wrenching. It's fun. Talk to people. Learn stuff. Uh, embrace your curiosity. Embrace being a learner. Uh, you know, be open-minded. Like, it's fun. You never know what you're, you're going to discover. Right. Yeah, interestingly, your, your second tip of understand that transferable skills aren't enough. We talk about, like for me, being a, a STEM guy, and we talk to our graduate students and postdocs, 
and say there's certain things that you can do based on your on your graduate education say project management it doesn't even matter if you're in a stem discipline if you're in humanities or social sciences your project alone that's your dissertation project that's a project you could argue that's that's project management but when you said in your article yeah it's you really better know what project management is depending on the sector. It's more than just what you'd see in academia. That way you can set yourself up to be either more competitive or maybe at a, you know, at a disadvantage. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one of the myths, there's a lot of misconceptions I think about non-academic employment. And one of the things, again, we hear a lot from people that we interview is that, you know, employers are looking for relevant work experience and they're looking that you understand their discourse, that you understand the language of the, of the industry. And so, yes, like, yes, I kind of, like, I didn't fall on my face and I managed to publish my dissertation and that was awesome, but I didn't really actively develop project management skills. Like I don't do agile. I don't do lean. You know, I don't incorporate the types of project management strategy strategies that are, you, you know, used in corporations, nonprofits across um, North America. And I probably would have been more efficient at writing my dissertation had I actually recognized that project management wasn't just a thing you do, but actually a discipline that people study, write articles about, and have developed strategies around and taken that seriously and respected it, learned it, and then applied it to my actual project, then I wouldn't have had to like read it and go back and be like, well, I kind of did these things. I could have actually attacked the dissertation or I could have taught my courses with an eye to implementing project management skills and being more efficient as a project manager. So I think that's what we mean. Like, it's not enough to survive your graduate school experience and then decide you're a facilitator. There are actual techniques that people use to facilitate workshops that we don't use in facilitating small group discussions. So availing yourself to that knowledge, learning that, and then actually using that in your classroom uh, shows respect for, the for these other disciplines and actually gives you the knowledge to then talk about it and direct linear work experience to then talk to employers about what it is you've been doing. One of the PhDs I've known for a few years, I mean, he was a conference panelist for us and I did an interview with him re recently. He's an analytical linguist currently at Google and he was telling me how, uh, I mean, that sounds like kind of an uh, academic title, right? Analytical linguist. But he was making the point to me that the level of coding, I mean, I don't even know the right language, but the level of work that he had to do, you know, reading off all of these languages, computer languages, <laughs> but the level of work that was required and expected at Google was so much higher than he would ever have to do in academia. And academics aren't necessarily aware of that. Uh, and so it's the same thing. Like you might do kind of these things, but you really want to make sure that if you're claiming that, that it is true and to value, and I don't want this to be a rant, but to value that other folks who aren't academics do have expertise. And there is there are professions uh, with their own research and, and, and their, their own worlds out there uh, that, that you can't you can't just uh, swan into. And I, I again I, I don't mean to uh, what's the word I'm looking for in that uh, 
discredit or discount? Yeah, I don't, right. I don't, I, yeah, exactly. I don't need to discredit or discount. It's just to be a, a little uh, aware that you may not have the level of skill for a more senior position uh, that you would hope uh, that someone your same age who did not go the academic route may have. That's not always the case. You know, it may be different, you know, for social scientists, maybe they, anyways, it depends. <laughs> Do your homework. And that's something that you learn with these informational interviews, you know, and that's why it's really important to begin exploring that early and often having those conversations to really begin to understand like what does it how would somebody like me get a job doing something someone like you what are the things that I would have to know and the other piece just to tag on to what Jen and we hear this all the time too is like don't be scared of entry level um, that you might have relevant transferable skills but you don't you maybe haven't had the opportunity to develop the linear work experience or the inside industry knowledge so you might actually have to take a, a more entry-level position learn that and then what we hear from people is that they advance very quickly within organizations and with industries once they actually have that experience the linear work experience and that's what we hear a lot that that it's the lack of linear work experience the lack of concrete uh, examples on your resume that can be a real stumbling block for PhDs yes you have the transferable skills you're really smart you're a lifelong learner you're all of these really great things but it's a risk for an employer to, you know, employers evaluate candidates, you know, your past behavior is the best prediction of future behavior. And so that's one of the reasons why they're so interested in your linear, linear work experience. Have you succeeded in similar roles in the past? Will you then therefore succeed in this position in my organization? So you have to be able to prove that. Yeah, ab absolutely. Built, you have to build a foundation before you can put up walls in, in your house. So you're... Your third point I, was really recognizing the value of your knowledge. And one of the suggestions you had is really to, for, let's say, an individual to take the lead on his or her dissertation topic. Now, and, and certainly where it would lead you next. And, and to me, I wonder, maybe this could be, well, I, I guess it doesn't matter in discipline, would be that your major professor has a major role in that as well. And maybe, you know, I guess for some folks, maybe they have a little bit of pressure to go down one direction as opposed to another. And how would you respond to that if you really have some thoughts about where you'd like to go next, which is a non-academic career path, and how to choose that research topic even despite the pressure from your your major professor on going maybe in a different direction? So one uh, example I think we might have given in the article is uh, someone I interviewed a few weeks ago who did a social science PhD and her research subjects for her dissertation were women who worked in the tech industry. And uh, so although she did not do UX research <laughs> for her dissertation, uh, she knew that world. So she had like a kind of a cultural, social understanding of that world. And that made it easier for her to then, I mean, in my language, uh, she still had to change careers, but there was, she was further ahead than somebody like me, for example, who doesn't know anything about women in the tech world, although I have a bit of a sense of it now. But yeah, like, so there's, that can be, for folks where there's really no direct connection, and there are plenty of folks where there is a direct connection, but when there isn't a direct connection, it can be that. In terms of, um, I'm sort of veering away from your question, but let me add one more thing, um, is that 
for stuff that you do that isn't about the dissertation itself, like a lot of folks in humanities, social sciences are teaching as part of the requirement or as part of their funding. Uh, and um, one of our past panelists, she chose uh, to teach online in addition to in-person uh, because she knew and she studied Victorian technology. So, you know, it was the dissertation, but it was also choices of her making saying, oh, I'm interested in technology. I'm interested in old tech. I'm interested in new tech. I'm here in a teaching institution. I could teach in person. Oh, I could teach online. And then she was able to transition from that. Maybe it wasn't easy, but it made more sense. She was able to tell the story and transition into uh, an educational technology role or an instructional design role uh, because she made choices, not just in her dissertation, but in this case, it was more uh, in the work that she did within uh, the, her department within her university while she was a graduate student, uh, that, that she didn't have to make the choice to teach online, but it was a strategic one. Uh, a second example, if, or I guess we're on a third, a third example, I just uh, did an interview the other day with an engineer who now works as a data scientist in a hospital. And the way he got almost all of his jobs is that he made friends with vendors. So he uh, took on the role of researching uh, technology solutions in his lab. So that was a skill that he, he was interested in it, but it was a skill. Um, and so he researched the initial, uh, uh, um, I don't know, instruments that they were using in their lab. And then he built a 20, now a 20 year relationship with uh, the vendors and uh, when the vendor has questions, when that new customer comes up and says, well, do you think this is the right solution for us? This vendor puts them in touch with this PhD and the PhD gives, you know, information. And, and he has actually a lot of opportunities that have come out of those conversations through, through that vendor. And so that's just another example of like, yes, maybe you're in a topic Maybe your topic isn't necessarily the most transferable, but maybe there's things that you can look at in your lab. Um, you can look at structuring your time in the lab. Maybe you want to do science communication and outreach. So you talk to your advisor about, maybe you're the person who puts the slides together. Maybe you're the person who starts an Instagram or a Twitter account on behalf of the lab. Maybe you're the person who makes friends with the vendor. Just be really creative about the types of skills that you're, that you're developing. And think about your knowledge very broadly, not just your knowledge in terms of like, I studied pornography in the 18th century. That's in fact what I did. That's not very transferable, right? Like I read dead people's diaries. That's not really the most transferable knowledge. But there's lots of stuff that I know now about media, narrative, writing, um, understanding of gender and gender construction, issues of toxic masculinity. There's lots of ways in which I could take this very theoretical knowledge that I have that's not limited to 18th century early American print culture. And think about types of organizations that would be interested in that knowledge, um, even though, I, you know, on the surface, it sounds very useless. Well, yeah, I think you're showing that it's not. But, but nonetheless, I, I think based on what, the, what both of you have said about number three, I think, I'm seeing number four and five even somewhat combined. And I'll tell you what I mean. So four, make your research public, and fourth is professionalize and vary your teaching experience. Talk about how important it is to be able to communicate, how communication is extremely important, and also by mixing things up and how that can really help you be that much of a better communicator. One of the things that we did that when I was graduate dean, we started a Toastmasters club for our folks. You said that some people don't have leadership skills. 
And certainly Toastmasters is an organization that will help folks become better oral communicators and leaders. And in fact, one of our podcasts was with a couple of folks who are part of Toastmasters. What can you tell us in terms of ideas about being able to all other ways to make your research public and, and also how can other ways you can vary the way you're presenting things, your teaching aspects. You talked to uh, Jen already about somebody who uh, mixed it up. So what else can you tell us that would help our listeners know a little bit more about, yeah, this is how you can strengthen what you do, your communication skills, and yet feel comfortable doing so. So uh, my biggest suggestion that I like to give is uh, uh, learn to love LinkedIn. We write a lot about LinkedIn. But one of the things that uh, LinkedIn has built in now is like an article or a blogging feature. And, you know, rather than creating and maintaining a WordPress site where you're putting up all of your publications that no one's going to see, you can begin writing uh, for a general audience about your research and connecting with people who might be interested in your research in a professional capacity just by using LinkedIn. So setting up a LinkedIn profile, finding organizations who might be interested in your research, following them, and then showcasing that knowledge um, on LinkedIn in a couple of short articles because you learn to write Writing for a general audience is very different. Writing quickly, writing in an accessible way. Um, LinkedIn, there's also opportunities to put up videos so you can, you know, do videos where you're explaining certain concepts. Um, you maybe you want to take on like giving lectures at the public library about your research. Um, and that's a very different audience. And so you can apply. Uh, a lot of public libraries have application process to, to do web, uh, to not, not webinars, but to do public presentations, have somebody come and record it, put it up. Um, and Jen's a big fan of Twitter. I'm not on there as much as I probably should be. But Twitter is another great place to, again, find places, find other people who might be interested in your research, not just in academia. Um, learn about other types of conferences. You know, we're talking about like project management. There's like lots of meetup groups. There's lots of um, conferences and things like that that are happening in around cities. Uh, find them, go to them, you know, um, and learn how people are talking. See if you can present your research in a different capacity at a more uh, industry focused or nonprofit focused um, event. Uh, don't just focus on academic conferences. Those would be some of the ideas I'd have, Jen. Yeah, so let me start with one example, and I have a second one for you. Um, but the first example is uh, Carolyn Harris. I don't think she would mind me uh, bringing her up. She is also a history PhD, and when she was doing her dissertation, um, so she studies uh, royals, and I, I say she still studies royals, but uh, royalty in, I don't know, she's the British and French royalty in I don't know what century, but her dissertation advisor suggested her as a contact for the media department at her university, she went to Queen's University in Canada. Uh, and she started to get contacted uh, by uh, journalists when there was a royal event. And you know, not all historical topics <laughs> are so news newsworthy, but of course you can think of many scientists uh, where this could happen as well. But over the years, and by doing it, uh, Carolyn Harris, I am now watering her plants because she's a neighbor of mine. Uh, she uh, and her husband are on a cruise. She's a cruise ship lecturer. That is one of her jobs. She's a cruise ship lecturer. She's a media commentator. Uh, every time there's something royal that happens, <laughs> a death or a marriage or babies, <laughs> uh, anything that happens, uh, 
she's on TV, she's on radio, she is on like six in the morning until like midnight. Uh, she gets picked up on a car and driven downtown and uh, in the studio. Um, she's been able to carve out a career and she's written three books now, uh, one of which is a dissertation, but two other books uh, for a uh, trade publisher. Uh, so, she, you know, she's managed over the last few years Starting with the work that she did while she was a graduate student, she's managed to carve out an independent career for her, uh, herself. Let me give one more example. It's somebody who did not necessarily use his particular uh, academic knowledge, but uh, he, this is uh, Graydon Snyder, and he's a chemistry PhD, so someone quite different. Um, and he was, he was a runner, still a runner, and so he wrote articles uh, just on his own website, and later he published on Running Magazine, I think it's called, uh, about the science of running. So he was doing science communication, and he now works in data science, uh, data scientist for an e-commerce uh, fashion company. It's nothing to do with what he studied uh, in, in the knowledge bit, but in the process bit, uh, it does. But he told me how the fact that he had published uh, running articles in this magazine was really, imp really impressed uh, potential employers and the, the employer that ended up hiring him because, as Marianne said, communication skills are really valued. And being able to make an argument, being able and, and not just on paper, but in person, uh, you know, if you can have a podcast while in grad school, I had a podcast in the indie music scene, I had a blog, I mean, didn't necessarily lead to jobs, but it's good skills. It's really good skills to be able to talk uh, about your research and other stuff. That's, a, that's great. I have one last question for you. Is there a question I should have asked, but I didn't? My favorite, my favorite, Marin, is what has been most surprising for you? Jen, what has been most surprising to you? What has been most surprising for me? I, I, you know, I think I felt so down on myself when I was Finishing my dissertation, I felt really disconnected from a world that I had in years past felt really connected to, and so I mean the world of scholarship, and that was just difficult emotionally and psychologically to feel disconnected from that, and to feel disconnected from everything, and to not, and therefore not feel connected to anything. That was really tough, and I had this kind of dread that this was it. <laughs> that I would never be happy outside of academia, that everyone was dumb, uh, you know, ah, and that, that sucked. And now I feel that I am more me, for good or ill, but I have a lot of fun. You know, there's challenges and difficulties, but it's, you know, there's a lot of fun. And, and I've, I've done things that I enjoy and that energize me, and I know myself a lot better, and I've met so many more people, and it's, just great. I love working with Marin. <laughs> we have our moments, but like it's fun and it's it's energizing, and I learn so much and stuff I would just never ever have learned. Uh, it's yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think I'll I'll say a similar thing. I think the surprising thing. Yeah, I think I think how hard business is has been really surprising. Like I knew it was hard, but this has been like. A, a you know a butt whooping of uh, unbelievable proportions. I thought surviving graduate school was going to be um, the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, 
uh, self-employment was challenging, but the small business and trying to launch, launch products, trying to figure out what people value, how to reach them, how to communicate effectively. Um, there's a whole, there's just so many different communication strategies that I didn't know anything about. Um, and I think, like Jen said, if you want to learn, you want to, if you value learning and you value challenges and you value meeting new people and having interesting conversations with people who don't think at all like you, uh, leaving academia is going to set you up for a lot of that. The process of finding that new career is going to be one of the most challenging things you'll ever do, um, full of self-reflection, but also you'll just learn so much about yourself and you'll learn so much about other people. I'm surprised at how much I like strategic thinking and planning for businesses. I'm surprised at how much I like thinking about marketing and, and planning uh, communication strategies. Um, I'm surprised at how much I like thinking about how to manage and mentor employees and thinking about their success. Um, uh, so yeah, like I, I, I think that I'm surprised every day at the richness, the intellectual rich, richness and challenges that I face running a small business and I know that tomorrow I'll wake up and something will be broken and if something else will be on fire and we will have to hunker down and problem solve and find solutions and and we'll hopefully succeed and just like with our dissertation though we have met every challenge so far fingers crossed toes crossed <laughs> wish us luck Randy yeah no, that's great. So thank you. That's a wonderful way to, to end. So I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Jennifer Polk and Marin Wood, for sharing their knowledge, experience, and insight on how to prepare for a non-academic career path, regardless of their area or your current status of training or position. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and in iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured a video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD which landed them in their current and very exciting position. I'm Randy Partkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.